Today's interview is brought to you by VanEck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about VanEck's income-focused ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. It's Monday, May 3rd. Fed Chair Jay Powell just got off the podium, and it's a historic day. We are joined by Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Jim, so the Fed raised by 25 basis points uh, as anticipated. Rates are now above 5% for your first time in 15 years. How historic of a day is this? And, and what are your broad takeaways? Uh, it looks like the Fed wants to um, stop raising rates. We'll call it what the media has been terming this, a hawkish pause, that uh, right now the market is giving us about 15% or so chance that they're going to raise rates again at the June meeting, about an 85% chance <clears throat> that they're going to hold it. So it looks like for the moment, the rate hike cycle is coming to an end. Uh, Chairman Powell also talked about a couple of other things, you know, that they've also got QT going at $95 billion a month. That is the reduction of the balance sheet. And so everybody understands what that is. The Fed owns $8 trillion worth of securities, about 100-ish plus billion mature every month. They buy back what matures less 95 billion, 60 billion less than treasuries and 35 billion less than mortgages. That is a restrictive act as well. And then he mentioned that, of course, the tightening of credit standards and what's been happening in the banking system is another restrictive act. So if you add it all up, it looks like the Fed is at least done for now. But he was asked a question by Mike McKee at Bloomberg, <coughs> whether or not uh, there's a, a cut on the table and he kind of dismissed that out of hand. There's going to be no cut unless the economic circumstances change. So for people watching this, um, call me when the stock market's down another 10 or 15%, because short of that, there's going to be no cut. Right. And uh, Jim, going into the meeting, how are you assessing the odds of another 25 basis point hike after this at the June meeting? And to what degree did your view change? Yeah, I thought what we got was right where I was on this, that we were going to get the hawkish pause and that the market was going to was going to hold from there. Um, going into the June meeting, I don't think he's going to get any reason to really raise rates again. The economic data uh, shouldn't really be that um, surprising. I suspect that you'll see about 180,000 jobs on payrolls on Friday. <clears throat> you'll see about 0.4 on uh, the CPI number in the middle of May, that's not going to move the needle. He's going to hold on that data. Now, after the June meeting, I think he's going to run into a problem. I, I think that, personally, I think that June is going to be the low of the year in inflation, and inflation is going to start drifting higher for the second half of the year. And I think in the second half of the year, we're going to see the, the cumulative effects of the banking crisis really start to bite. In other words, stagflation. We're going to see sticky inflation. We're going to see slowing growth. And he's going to have a dilemma on his hands. Which way is he going to pivot? Is he going to pivot towards the sticky inflation and talk about more rate hikes? Or is he going to pivot towards the slower growth and talk about potentially cutting rates? But for the June meeting, I think he's probably on hold. Uh, he's on hold for that meeting. He's on hold for June. There, there was a question where Jay Powell said, Based on the tightening of credit, based on quantitative tightening, we're getting close to there. And you can make a case that we're already there, referring to restrictive. So, Jim, so yeah, how, how likely do you think it is that today was the last hike in this hiking cycle? 
Uh, it's very, it's, there's a very good chance it could be if, if outside effects come in. And I'm talking about the banking crisis. I guess we, we could pivot to that in a minute or so, because mm-hmm. really, when you talk about the Fed, there's what's happening right now and what should be the appropriate policy right now. Okay. And even if you had a crystal ball and you knew that, doesn't matter. Because what is about to happen next is really what's going to change the policy. And I think that all revolves around the banking system right now. And what is the resolution of what's going on with the banks? And that's going to be the real question or the real thing that's going to drive his policy from here on forward. And I'll start to answer that. I happen to be worried that the banking system, the cumulative effects of what we've seen with the banks is going to lead to a problem in the economy. And in that case, you might make the case that if the economy turns down enough, it'll drag down inflation and we might start seeing rate cuts. Let me say one last thing about rate cuts. Historically, when the Fed starts to cut rates, that is about the worst time to own risk assets. Why is that the worst time? Because to put it bluntly, when does the Fed start cutting rates? When they're panicking. They're panicking that the economy is going down. When was the last time they started cutting rates? It's February, it's early March, it was March 2nd of 2020. Why did they cut rates on March 22nd of 2020 and start with 50 basis points? Because they were in full-fledged panic over the um, over the, um, the pandemic. When was the last time they started cutting rates before that? Was 2007. Why were they cutting rates in 2007? They were in full-fledged panic over what would be known as the great financial crisis. And in 2001, was the last time before that that they started cutting rates, January 3rd of 2001. Why did Greenspan start with a 50 basis point cut? Because he was in full-fledged panic as to what was going to happen with the economy. In each one of those cases, we were either in recession or we were about to go in recession and markets turned south. So be careful of the pivot. You're asking for the worst environment to own stocks. You're asking for everything to fall apart. And that's why the Fed cuts rates. I know people want to say, no, this pivot's going to be a, declare, a declaration of victory that there's no inflation, and that's why they're going to cut rates. He, again, was asked that question, and he pretty much dismissed it. And I think he's right to dismiss it because there's not going to be any declaration of inflation being vanquished, and so therefore we could start lowering interest rates. Right. So a pivot itself, actually cutting rates historically is is not bullish, like you know, 2007. Uh, uh, six, seven, but the pricing in of a slowdown in cuts, that can be bullish. And that's what we've seen over, over the past six months. Jim, before I ask you about the banks, just for you know, uh, folks who didn't catch it, I just want to put on, stream, on, on screen, and I know it's small to see, um, but th- this is the language uh, shown by Nick, Nick Timoros, who I'm interviewing tomorrow, language that was in today's FOMC statement that wasn't in yesterday, or excuse me, last uh, um, or, uh, March's, March's meeting. And uh, they did not have the line that the committee anticipates that some additional policy firming may be appropriate. And, and that was really sort of the, the, the dovish uh, uh, tilt that the, the market um, went to. And then, you know, 30 minutes after we- Yeah, we had, the hawkish pause. That was uh, the that's, hawkish yeah, pause. Sorry. So, so that's the, the hawkish pause. Yeah. Now, Jim, I've got right. some other, other charts that you've been putting on uh, um, Twitter uh, uh, just about the banking system. And I know you had some, some questions for, for Powell. But yeah, pa- Powell made a comment and, you know, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said that broadly- conditions in the banking sector have improved since March. And he said that today on Wednesday, May 3rd, uh, two days after uh, JP Morgan took over the assets of uh, First Republic at four in the morning on, on Monday. 
Yeah. What do you think about that statement that banking the conditions have improved in the banking sector since March? At the near the end of the presser, he also said that uh, the the deposit outflows have been stabilizing. And my first response was, are we talking about the United States banking system? Or are we talking about a different banking system here? Because it isn't. I don't know what he's referring to. But let me back up, because I always start every discussion about the banking crisis or turmoil or whatever word we're going to use for it. What is it? What is happening to the banks? And I've been pushing back that everybody has been doing what they've been doing is they've been pulling out their 2008 playbook and they've been forcing this situation into 2008. Stop doing that. This is not 2008. This is something different. 2008 was a solvency crisis. That was the banks invested in a bunch of stuff that lost them money. And then their assets went below their liabilities and they became insolvent. 2023 is a liquidity crisis. What is a liquidity crisis? Everybody's demanding their money back from the banks right away. And the bank doesn't have enough money or cash to meet every obligation to give people back their cash. It's a bank run. Now that can turn into a, a banking crisis. Oh, well, what about the duration mismatch? No one is running away from a bank because of a duration mismatch. Nobody knew there was a duration mismatch at Silicon Valley uh, that they decided that they that they were running away from that. It, and besides, it's all in instruments with no credit risk. They have a duration mismatch and unrealized loss in treasuries. If they can hold them to maturity, they get paid back par. So, and besides, the last thing is for all the people saying, well, they mismanaged their hedge. Yes, they did. They did mismanage their hedge. But remember, if a bank hedges everything perfectly, they make no money. They have to take a risk somewhere. They've been taking an interest rate risk. That has been the wrong risk to take. They've been losing money. But if there's this idea that they're supposed to have no risk, they have no profit either. That's where they make their profit. Now that I've defined this as a liquidity crisis, everybody wants their money back. What is the problem? The problem is 5% money market rates. The problem is 5 to 5.25% treasury bill rates. The, the reason people are leaving banks is not out of fear. It's out of greed. They want yield. Mm. And that has been a bank walk. That's the phrase we've been using, bank walk as opposed to a bank run. And this accumulates week after week after week. And when we stress the banking system, who goes over the side first? The weakest players. I don't need a 118-page report by Michael Barr at the Fed to tell me that Silicon Valley Bank was a poorly run bank. I could see their 60 cent stock price and figure it out that they were a fully run, run bank. I could see that for First Republic no longer trades to figure out that they're a, full, uh, they're a poorly run bank. But why did all those banks go over this side? They've been stressed. What was the stress? Everybody wants their money out of the banks. Why do they want their money out of the banks? Because of greed. They want a 5% yield. They don't want a half a percent yield, or in the case of JP Morgan, a one basis point yield. And that is what I'm afraid of. You should expect, when Jay Powell said the banking system is stabilizing, that is absolutely irrational behavior that people would say, oh, things are fine. Jack, move all your money back in the chase and get one basis point. If you have $250,000, you're fine with $25 of interest income a year, as opposed to spending two minutes on your phone to move it to a chase 
money market fund, it'll give you $12,500 a year in interest income. That is irrational to say that the banking system has stabilized. People want income and they're moving towards higher yielding products. And after that should happen week in and week out. And when you get to the fourth quarter, all of that withdrawal is going to, I think, really hurt on credit standards and the economy. And what did the Fed do today? They made it worse by raising rates and further widening that spread. So I'll come back to the beginning. I don't know what banking system is better than it was in March and things have stabilized, but it certainly isn't the United States banking system. Maybe he's looking at some other country that I'm not familiar with. Right. Jim, a a key difference between this and 2008 is that there, there was a run on broker dealers who funded themselves in wholesale markets, whereas this is actual, you know, mom and pop people with actual deposits, not uh, sort of sort of repo. But I think that point you also make about fear versus greed is so important. When people are pulling their money from Bear Stearns, excuse me, I say people, banks, bank, you know, traders were pulling their money from Bear Stearns, pulling their, their money from Lehman Brothers. That was based on fear. Now it's based on, oh, hey, I can get 5% in this treasury, 5% in this money market. The one basis point isn't cutting anymore. Oh, you're telling me I can get 170 basis points? Not good enough. And so it's a bank walk. When it goes into a bank run, there, there you are having a fear. But yeah, I think that's an important distinction to draw. Jim, tell us about- Can I, can I, yeah, can yeah, please, I just uh, interject on that? There is one level of fear out there, and that is in the bank stocks. And it comes back to what happened Sunday night, Monday morning. So I'm going to use a technical phrase for you, Jack. You can interpret it. Jamie Dimon pantsed the FDIC. He got such a good deal from the FDIC that it turned out to be a net negative. Why do I say that? Because they zeroed out all of the stockholders. They zeroed out all of the bondholders. That means they got nothing. They lost 100% of their money. The bank, First Republic went into FDIC receivership. JP Morgan got to pick out all the assets that they wanted, got a loss guarantee. And then the FDIC held some of the other really bad stuff and took a $13 billion hit. So what is it that the message to the rest of the world was? PacWest, let me use PacWest as an example. The stock got hammered the last couple of days, down 40% or so through Monday and Tuesday combined, and it's at the low level. PacWest is headquartered in Beverly Hills. Now, maybe I'm just speculating for argument for illustrative purposes. Maybe the chairman of PacWest calls up another big bank that has some lineage with the West Coast, that would be Bank of America, and says, help me out here. Can you give me some deposits or something? It would be perfectly reasonable for them to say, you know what, you're going to go over the side and the FDIC is going to take you over and they're going to zero out all the stockholders and bondholders. And why do they do that? So they could say it's not a bailout. And then I'll just pick your carcass out of the FDIC, take the assets I want and leave everything else. Mm -hmm. So every bank investor is looking at the bank and going, is this a a good value to buy the bank? Yeah. What's my downside? 100% loss. Because there is a there is a there is a panic driven by falling stock prices that drives them into the FDIC, but no bank is going to step up before FDIC receivership to try and save them, and everybody loses everything. So yes, Jamie Dimon got a great deal, but the pro, but the the consequence of that great deal was every regional bank has been getting blistered since that deal because it really was. 
do not step up and save anybody. Just pick them over once the FDIC takes them out. And so, therefore, I think it was a, it was a bad deal that the FDIC did for the banking industry. It was a tremendous deal that Jamie Dimon did for J.P. Morgan. Right. And I, I see what you're saying, that normally you'd want to acquire a competitor that, at a distressed sale. Oh, you know, Bear Stearns, $2 a share uh, in 2008. Ultimately, I think he got raised to $10 a share. But the ultimate deal is- Right, Washington Mutual at $8 a share. Yeah, you take Washington it over to the FKC, and then you get to pick and choose those assets. So it's no, uh, no incentive for a large bank to help a bail out a, a smaller bank. And for bank stock investors, they're seeing- Hey, you know, I I owned that preferred stock of First Republic. I got burned. I got bageled. Like I, I did worse right. than Bear Stearns Preferreds, which got made whole. I got totally destroyed. I'm not going to own any of this. And that's right. And if you right, if you were to think about professional investors that own PacWest or Washington Mutual or Metropolitan Bank or Valley National, these are some of the. Uh, the I picked those four because those are the regional banks that were down more than twenty percent the day before we're recording. If they're having a meeting, uh, what's the what's the risk with you know what's the valuation of the bank? Well, the banks are very cheap by historical valuation. What's our risk? A hundred percent loss is what our risk is. Not that the stock just underperforms for a quarter or two. It is a hundred percent loss. What's the possibility of that? Well, if the stock keeps going down and everybody panics, it becomes a vicious cycle to zero. Man, that's a possibility. That is a possibility with all of these. Well, what about Jamie Dimon stepping up and maybe buying these at distressed prices? I'm just repeating what you said. No, he'll wait until it goes into FDIC receivership and pick over their carcass. So yeah, this, this, is, this is the problem that we set up with the banking system, and it's not going to be any better. And I'll come back to what I said two minutes ago. I don't know what banking system Jay Powell's looking at to make him say this statement that things are getting better and stabilizing. After last year's interest rate surge, income has made a comeback, and VanEck has the ETFs to help bring income to your portfolio. You can check out VanEck's wide range of income-focused ETFs using their Income Investing Yield Monitor, where you can search by yield, duration, and expense to find the ETF that fits your needs. With the Yield Monitor, you can effortlessly track monthly fixed income ETF category flows, yields, total returns, and more. To access VanEck's Income Investing Yield Monitor, go to vanek.com slash forward guidance. Now the disclosures. Investing risk includes principal loss. Visit vanek.com to read a prospectus before investing. Vanek ETFs are distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Right, and that uh, J.B. Diamond, you know, CEO of, of J.P. Morgan Chase, which bought uh, the assets from, from First Republic very early Monday morning, uh, so, so Jim, there's the credit availability. So the Fed, it seems like Jay Powell is, you know, not paying attention to what you're paying attention to the issues you just talked about. But he does seem, and the Fed does seem to understand that a credit tightening has already begun. And admittedly, they're tightening from very loose bubble, you know, a, a credit bubble in 2021, 2022. But they are, especially at mid-sized regional banks, being tightened quite significantly. What today did Jay Powell uh, uh, say today that that made you think that that will uh, you know affect their policy going forward? That they're they're taking into account that credit tightening and and how you know severe do you think that credit tightening will be? Uh, I think the credit tightening will be severe. To answer the second question first, because as I said, as deposits leave the bank and as the bank you know continues to shrink, their ability to hand out loans is going to be in question. 
So you're going to run into a situation where a banker is going to say, good idea on your expansion of your business. I like the idea, but we just don't have the balance sheet to extend the loan. I'm very sorry. You know, and that, you know, as opposed to you're too risky, uh, you know, that would be the traditional type of of lending standard uh, crunch because our standards have been raised. Our standards are being raised because our, our, our balance sheets are getting pulled back. So I think that this is going to be a, a problem that I don't think he's appreciating because of his statement that, you know, the deposit flows have stabilized. Again, Jay, explain to me why somebody won't pick up their phone and spend 30 seconds on their bank app to move their money to a higher yield, which means move it out of a bank. That, that this idea that things have stabilized, as you're saying, people are irrational and they're going to stay irrational and they're not going to chase higher yield. Yeah, they get a free toaster if you stay at the bank, but it better be a $12,000 toaster. But otherwise, it's not a good deal. Oh, yes, it's a pain in the ass to move your money back and forth between a money market fund and, you know, to meet my mortgage payment, my car payment. But for 12 grand a year, I'll do it. You know, for, for a couple hundred dollars a year, I won't do it. And now that I've got a mobile banking app, this is the part that they don't understand. Mobile banking apps change it. There's 120 million people in the country that use a mobile banking app at least once a month. And guess what they use it for? To pay bills and to transfer money. Well, what are we talking about? Transferring money. They all know how to do this. Everybody knows they pick up their phone and move their money from one account to another account. That's all we're talking about. Oh, when it comes time to pay my mortgage, I'll move the money and I'll pay my mortgage. Good. Now, instead of being 14 seconds to do it, it's 18 seconds to do it. And this is the problem that they don't realize that this new technology has changed the behavior of deposits in banks. They do not operate the way they did pre-crisis. And the reason I say pre-crisis is we had mobile banking apps for a dozen years, but we had rates pinned at zero, so we didn't have this situation. Now that we've been raising rates so aggressively, this gap between deposit rates and bank and market rates is what's causing this issue. So, Jim, at the end, Jay Powell said that he understood it. He said, you know, he was asked, "What are your learnings from uh, these bank failures?" And he said. Mobile deposits, we were unaware that this could happen so quickly and so severely. I think he was referring to the Silicon Valley Bank, which you know happened within a few hours, yeah. really. Uh, so he says that he's learning it, but you don't think that he's enough. You don't think enough. No, I go back to the early part of the presser when Steve Leisman asked him the question about the February um, uh, uh, presentation. And Paul admitted, you know, he was there and he remembered it and he thought it was a good presentation. And he thought it was informational only, informational only. And is and I'll just quote Steve Leisman. I mean, I tweeted about this earlier today. If you want to look at my Twitter feed, uh, you know, I, that that's it right there. The example of financial risks as Silicon Valley Bank, the 18th largest banking organization, has significant interest rate risk. Oh, that's just informational. That is not something that you as the chairman of the Federal Reserve sitting in a meeting and they put that up on the screen and tell you the 18th largest bank has significant interest rate risk that you think that maybe you should do something about that or inquire about that? No, but the guy that gave the presentation was from Kansas City and it was the week after the Super Bowl. You probably asked him about Mahomes and you were more interested in that than this. Jay, you blew it big time. They put it in front of you that this was a problem and you didn't respond to it. And three weeks later, you went to Congress, March 7th and 8th, said you were going to raise rates 
Rates shot up, and 48 hours later, the bank was out of business. Was it a poorly run bank? Yes. And were they on the edge? Yes. But you should have known that the policy of pushing rates higher was going to push them over the side. How do I know you should have known? You were freaking told that three weeks before they went out of business. But it was just an informational meeting is all he was trying to say. I just I found that almost incredulous that he was trying to push that idea. I don't know what more we have to do to basically tell them that there is a problem and they're not listening that there is a problem. When you raise rates this fast in a mobile banking world, and remember, banks, the loan books on banks and the securities on banks are yielding about 3%. That's what they're yielding. They can't raise rates to four or five. They'll lose too much money. Now, you give them a year and a half or two years, those loans mature, those securities mature, mm-hmm. and they can roll them out in higher yielding, and they can get their loan books and their securities books to four and a half or something, and then they can raise their deposit rates in a year and a half. But people have been leaving every week this year banks for higher yields. And for him to be told straight, straight up, not only are you causing this problem in the banking system, but Silicon Valley is the biggest problem. And just shrug his shoulders and go, it was for informational purposes. Jim, it was one page. Jim, it was just yeah. one page. It was one, it was one page. <laughs> it was just one page. How many pages does it have to be for the chairman to act? I guess is really what the question is. So I, you know, he might have been able to get away with the financials is big and complicated. Nobody told me, but we know now that they told him. We know that they told him there was this problem with interest rates. And I'm going to go, I'm, you know, I'm wearing, I'm repping Northwestern here with my hat on, but I wish I had my conspiracy, uh, my tinfoil hat. But um, I will point out, and I pointed this out in a Twitter feed. I'm just, I'm just pointing this out. I'm not accusing. Starting the week after that presentation, Silicon Valley bank stock fell 10%. The average bank stock was down 2.5%. They didn't have a good week, down 2.5%. But SVB was down 10 the week after that meeting. Question, was that presentation leaked to short sellers and tech VCs? And they look and go, holy crap, on page nine, they're talking about significant financial risks to Silicon Valley. I got to get my money out of there? I got to short that stock? Did they, did they leak that? Did if they did, and I don't know they did, I'm just asking the question, I'm just pointing out, their stock fell apart the day after that presentation. If they did leak it, did they accelerate or contribute to the demise of Silicon Valley Bank? You know, so I'm just pointing out the stock price started immediately going down the day after that presentation. And it's unusual for the Fed to basically point out a private sector firm. This firm has this problem. Yeah, they, they never document. do that. It's, it's, they never say oh, Ford Motors has this problem. They make auto prices are down, but very bird's eye view, 10,000 foot, uh, uh, you know, very macro. Right. They never right. say they put Chipotle a specific, is, is raising prices. Yeah. Right, right. They put a specific bank and said it has financial risks. And starting the next day, it starts, stock starts falling apart. And I'm, I don't know. I'm just asking. That is unusual for that. If that document made it outside that boardroom to the right hands, short sellers, VCs, yeah, I'd look at that if I had a bunch of companies that I was funding that had money at Silicon Valley Bank and I'd act on it. If I was a short seller that was trafficking in that kind of business and I was told the Fed is now sitting there having meetings about Silicon Valley Bank's financial problems, I'd be willing to short that stock. 
And so, you know, I, of course, they're, no one's going to ask him. Of course, they still have to give me the answer to Rafael Bostic, not, you know, with his personal trading account. They still have to give me the answer about Austin Goolsby and about all of the shenanigans that went on with him getting the uh, job at the Chicago Fed. Uh, but, you know, we don't even hear about those investigations. So probably Jim, not what about the congresswoman who, who sold First Republic and bought J.P. Morgan? Yes. I mean, well, at least that's not the Fed. You know, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's that that's Congress in and of itself. So, you know, you could go you could go buy just go along the Nancy or the Cruz uh, ETFs, which are the Congress, the Republican and the Democrat ETFs uh, for, for at least for Congress. But that that's my point is that this all pins, you know, so coming back to what I said a minute ago. Yeah, we could talk about the state of inflation. We could talk about the economy, but it pins on what happens next. And what happens next is about what's happening in the banking system. If you take my view, which is the rational thing for people to do, is pick up their phone, move their money, get a yield, then money comes out, money comes out, money comes out. Well-diversified banks, B of A, JP Morgan, they can handle these outflows. Not going to be a problem for them. Mm -hmm. But narrowly defined businesses, narrowly defined banks in localities or specific lines of business which is a regional bank. A regional bank by its nature is more risky because it isn't this diversified global organization like JP Morgan. They lend to tech. They lend to Kansas City if you're the regional bank in Kansas City. Uh, you know, So that when there is a problem like deposit outflows or commercial real estate loans, your bank is going to feel it first before a JP Morgan or a B of A feels it. And that's why the weakest of them go over the side first. In 2008, when we had a problem, it started off with BNP couldn't report, uh, couldn't price their their uh, mortgage funds in August of 07. IndyMac, Countrywide, these were the names. Well, they were all mismanaged. Remember, Angelo Mozilla was that crazy orange guy that no one understood, and that's why his bank went over the side. And then it was Freddie and Fannie that went over the side. Well, they were mismanaged too. And it was, and then it was eventually it was Lehman Brothers. Well, you know, they were mismanaged. It was AIG. They were mismanaged. And then eventually people said, you know, how many times are we going to yell mismanaged before we start to realize there's a systemic problem here? And yes, the mismanaged die first in a systemic problem, but it is the mismanaged that are dying. And if that systemic problem is money is leaving, money is leaving, money is leaving. And now we've now set up a precedent. No one step up and help a bank. Wait till they go in the FDIC receivership. Let the stockholders get zeroed out first. Then you can pick over and pick the assets and the liabilities you want, uh, the assets and the deposits that you want out of, out of FDIC receivership. Now you've got to have the people that are fearful are the equity holders. Is this bank going to get caught in a vicious, right. a vicious cycle that's sending me to zero? The people that are greedy are the depositors. I'm leaving for a money market fund or a treasury bill at 5%. Right. And that will add up to a big problem by the fourth quarter. Right. And Jim, anytime a CEO of a company or a, someone who's long the stock blames short sellers for a decline in the price, I'm very skeptical of them because I think it's probably people who are long the stock just selling it for fundamental rational reasons. But with these banks, stocks, you, you, Jack, you follow the markets. it can accelerate deposit flow. It can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And yeah. uh, Western Alliance, Bancorp said exactly that. Um, and a lot, some of these troubled banks... Um, deposits flew, uh, flooded out of them, but actually have gone back in from mid-March to mid-April. Jim, I just want to say that your theory about the Fed and, and Silicon Valley Bank, that's interesting. But as you say, we, we don't know that for sure. But I just want to you know, re, uh, underline for the, our audience here that what we do know for sure is that this report or this page 
uh, uh, saying example of financial risk, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, has significant interest rate risk. That was uh, sent to Jay Powell mid mid February, nearly a month before it felt. So I just want to say that's what we know for sure. We, there are some things we know for sure. Right, and it's unusual. If you keep that up for a second, it is yeah, unusual yeah. for the Fed to basically name an organization like that. You're right. They always give the thirty thousand view. There's significant interest rate risk in the banking system. You know, well, who? But they never really say it. But they named it directly. And what I'm arguing is, I don't know, but I'm saying. This thing leaks out starting February 15th and people start in the in the financial community reading this, you know, it's, you know, another technical term for it. Holy crap, there's a problem with Silicon Valley Bank. I got to get my money out of there or I got to short the stock. And all I'm saying is look at what its stock started doing February 15th, the day after. Started going straight down is basically what happened after that. So, yeah, this is this is a problem. And and. Jay just thought that this was kind of informational stuff. No big deal. Is I, I don't know how much more when it says the banking organization is significant interest rate risk. Weaknesses in market management and high RR exposures have resulted in, and then it shows the problems. Jay, how much more do they have to tell you that there's a problem before there's a problem there? It seems to me that this is pretty clear that you flew in a guy from Kansas City and you had a D.C. staffer put together this to tell the entire board of the Fed that there is a problem here with Silicon Valley Bank. And you shrugged your shoulders and went out and said, we got to keep raising rates. And you made even more significant interest rate risk. And they failed two days after you gave your presentation that they're going to fail rates. Now, I know I'm, I'm, I'm harping on this thing about the, the stock price and stuff, and I don't know. But what I am trying to say is this is what's going to turn the economy in the next four or five months. What is the resolution of all of this? Are people going to start to say, oh, I'd rather have the toaster than $12,000, move your money back from a money market fund to the bank? Uh, are we, or are we going to continue to see that bleed? And again, will it hurt a JP Morgan? No. Will it hurt B of A? No. But when you start getting down to the regional banks and they just continue to see money leave and money leave, and again, not out of fear, but I just want to yield is why, why I want to leave the bank because they can't really offer a yield. That can accumulate into a big problem. And the Fed is being told, but it's just informational stuff. There's nothing really for the Fed to do, but to continue to raise rates. So I don't understand, like he said, what he was talking about, about that the banking system is resilient and that the, you know things are stabilizing. Yeah, credit to Steve Leesman for really pushing uh, Fed Chair Powell on that. So I think, Jim, you, people in the media, and I definitely include myself in this, have a bias to be slightly dramatic, negative bias, use words like banking crisis, but Fed Chair Powell obviously has a bias in the opposite direction. And yeah, he used the word resolve, resolution to talk about these bank failures, which is can be the uh, typical program, but it's not uh, resolution as in, oh, this, this problem is resolved. It's resolution as in like, uh, it, it, it has been dissolved, you know, the bank is no more. Right, right, yeah. exactly. And I, I and you know and I know I'm getting myself animated here about this. I want to be clear about some other things. We don't need another bank failure. Uh, the only reason we're going to, if we get another bank failure, it's going to be panic among the equity holders. That's what happened with the, with First Republic last week. If stock went from sixteen dollars to three dollars because of the bad earnings report. It was panic among the equity holders that pushed it over the side. But what I am worried about is this walk of people leaving. I'll give you the statistic that I've been using. Uh, a third of the workforce works for a company of less than 100 employees. 
half the workforce works for a company of less than 500 employees. The bank that's best suited to service those companies is a smaller regional bank. If people keep leaving for the rational reason that they want to yield, and those banks are impaired at handing out loans, the entire economy has a problem, is what it has right there. Yeah, you're going to fix the inflation problem, but you're going to fix it by hurting the economy, and that's not the way that we want to do it. And that, to me, is like I said, we could talk about where we are now. We could talk about what the payroll report's going to be on Friday. 180,000 is what the ex expectations are. I think we'll beat because we've done it for 12 in a row. And I'll just keep thinking we're going to beat until that changes. Uh, and But nevertheless, it's going to be what is going to happen with these banks moving forward. And it really comes down to, do you want a 5% yield or do you want a half a percent yield? And of course, everybody's going to say 5% yield. And that's why I think that this thing is not going to stop until we close that gap between deposit rates and market rate based rates. And that's the Fed cutting rates. They just raised rates again today. So we're not anywhere near them cutting rates. Right. And it really is remarkable, given some of these regional bank business models, it really was remarkable that people thought that a 500 basis point hike over the course of a year would be good for these businesses because they acquire assets really quickly when interest rates are low and they acquire them much more slowly when interest rates are high because everyone wants to get a 3% mortgage and not a lot of people want to get a 7% mortgage, especially after they know that they could have gotten that 3% a, a year ago. Uh, but, so, but their deposit rates, what they're paying on their liabilities is going up so much faster than their, their loan rates. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So net interest margins are going down uh, and, and you're absolutely right on, I mean, PacWest, for, for example, and you know, I'm not uh, fudding the, the stock by, by any means, but their, their lending has re really fallen off a cliff, intentionally so, to, to preserve their, their capital. Um, be, and uh, you know, it's down 80%, 90% uh, from first quarter of last year to, to this quarter. That, that's not systemic of the entire industry, but yeah, specific banks are certainly curbing their lending. But Jim, what, what would you say to the argument that it's not going to be systemic? Yes, these bank profitability are going to get crushed, but that doesn't mean that right. banks are going to continue to topple. Okay, just because a bank is only making 1% net interest margin and they're basically breaking even after they pay for you know employees and, and keeping the lights on, they're not making money. That doesn't mean that the bank will fail. And, and let right. alone, I a Lehman moment where it is truly systemic. Well, I, I would agree with that because I was actually arguing through last week that I didn't think we'd see another failure. Then, we, of course, we saw um, First Republic. And now what I'm worried about is the precedent that the FDIC sent is that, you know, you know if, if Pacific West or one of these other troubled banks is on the phone with a larger bank asking for help, they've just told them not to help them. They, they've told them you'll get a better deal if you don't, not to not help them. You'll get a better deal if you let them fail and then buy them out of receivership. You'll get a better deal that way. Uh, and that is going to be a real problem um, for the banking system. So yeah, I don't expect to see, I don't expect to see um, any more bank failures. Maybe we'll get one or two. And if we do, it will be driven by panic among the stockholders, not panic among the depositors. Depositors will only panic when the stock goes down a lot, but it'll be the stock that drives the depositors. But this is important. Again, half the workforce works for small companies. These banks are the way that they get credit. These banks are the way that they get financial services. They are important for the economy. If these banks lose money, struggle with deposits, they're not handing out loans. And if they're not handing out loans and they're not providing services to these small and intermediate companies, then the economy is going to feel it. Earnings are going to feel it. 
it, we're going to see a broad-based slowdown in the economy. So no, this is not 08. We are not going to have a full-blown asset valuation-driven crisis. Now, we're going to have some problems with commercial real estate, but I tend to think the reason that I'm being demure about that is because everybody's talking about it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, because yeah. everybody's talking about it, it's priced in with whatever commercial real estate problem we are having. What people are not talking about is the bank walk because they're all, they're all dust off the model of, oh, wait, oh, banks are in trouble. There must be bad assets. Look for bad assets. You're looking at the left side of the balance sheet. I'm saying look at the right side of the balance sheet, the liabilities of the banks. That's where the deposits are. That's where your problem is. It's on the other side of the balance sheet. This is different from 08. Right. And yeah, so, you know, two years ago, you were one of the very few people who were talking about commercial real estate and offices and work from home. And it was it was a problem. So you know, there was a, there was an edge there. But now, as you say, everyone is talking about it. So the, the risks uh, might be right. And the big thing there. and the big thing we were talking about two years ago was, you know, when I was talking about work from home, you know, the 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 the, the retard was everybody's going back to the office. You watch. They're going to go back. All right. We're more than three years past the pandemic right now. And if you look at the Castle office system data, which shows the percentage of office mm -hmm. use, they're the, they're the security card company, the biggest one in the country, and they give out a statistic, what percentage of people in all the offices that they have security cards are going back to the office. It is stalled at around 50% nationally for the last year. Uh, and we're three years past the pandemic. We're not going back. It, it, the ship has already sailed. So now we understand that offices have a problem because we're not going back. But now that we understand it, it's somewhat in the price. And like it wasn't in the price of office real estate two years ago because we thought everybody was going to go back. It is in the price now. So yeah, is there a commercial real estate problem? Absolutely. Charlie Munger's 100% correct. But the stocks of a lot of these heavily banks that are heavily levered to commercial real estate before the bank walk were getting crushed anyway because we have been pricing that in. It's always the thing you don't expect that is going to be the problem. And that's why I'd be surprised if first we, 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 we talk forever about commercial real estate, then it becomes a problem. Usually isn't the thing we talk forever about that becomes the real problem because it's priced in. Right. And Jim, just on the credit contraction points, do you think it's going to be severe enough that we will have a re recession, maybe a bad recession, or is it possible, you know, I hate to use the term, it could be like a Goldilocks credit contraction uh, that, oh, the bank stopped lending. But guess what? It was all of this lending that caused the inflation in the first place. And there was a giant credit boom in 2022. I mean, that just is objectively true if you look at bank credit expansion. Um, uh, right. and, and so actually it will help the Fed in their quest to, to curb inflation. And also just note that I believe the last time we spoke, you know, you've been a secular inflationist uh, a person and you thought, okay, things are slowing down, but the economy is still good. So I'm just curious if, you know, I think it's the bank crisis has happened since we last spoke. Have your views changed because the facts change? Yeah. So it, taking the, la the last part first, I am still a secular inflationist. I still think that the, love, the inflation rate will hit its low of the year in June. And the reason I think that is if you look at the base effect right. of inflation, you're dropping off huge numbers, 0.9%. In May of 22, the inflation rate for the month of May was 0.9. In June of 22, it was 1.2. 1.2 is one of the highest numbers ever recorded for a monthly number for the inflation rate. You drop those off and you replace them with a 0.4 or 0.3, which is what we've been getting lately. The 5% inflation rate goes to the low threes by June, just from what they refer to as the base effect. 
Right. What do you drop in July? You drop zero. That was the inflation rate for July was zero. Uh, that's July 22's inflation rate was zero. Then you have a tenth. Then you have two tenths. Those are the numbers you drop in the second half of the year. Well, if we keep printing three and four tenths like we have been, then the inflation rate bottoms in the low threes and it starts making its way back towards four and four and a half by the end of the year. And it starts going back up. Now, that's unless you tell me, well, there's going to be a recession or $150 crude oil or $50 crude oil, yeah. then we'll have to adjust it for that. But without a recession or without any of that other stuff, the inflation rate's about to bottom. And then it's about to start to creep back higher. Uh, and that is going to be what the Fed is focused on. Right. And Jim, sorry, let, let me focus- explain that. That So you're not so much making a call about what sort of actual inflation will be month over month, but you're just pointing out the fact that in June, the price of oil was at $120. So if the price of oil in this June, uh, June of last June of 2022, year. it was at 120 So if the price of oil is 80, 80 bucks, that is a huge uh, deflationary force year over year. And the way that uh, it's reported and most people think of inflation is, oh, you know, oh, inflation's at 7%. They don't think month over month, oh, it's at 0.5%, even though mathematically that's probably more accurate. So I just want to explain that, that basic point effect. So sorry, back to you and on the, on the yeah, that's, that's that's the base. That's the base effect. So the idea about inflation, I mean, understand that the base effect is about over on inflation. And now in order to bring inflation down from here, you're either going to need a recession or you're going to need much lower oil prices, like 50 bucks, or you're going to need both. Usually you get both. When, when you get a recession, you also get very low oil prices as well. So you're going to have that inflation problem. On the other side about the lending problem, uh, is this a good thing? Look, I just had Oregon in my house here a little while ago, and I like to kid around that, you know, when everybody says, well, the credit crunch is going to do Orkin's problem. Look, I could go get myself a blowtorch and do Orkin's work of getting rid of the bugs in my house, too. But that's not the way you want to get rid of the bugs in your house. That's not the way you want to get rid of inflation by torching the economy. And that is why I, I worry about that. But let me also point out this. I talked about half the workforce is working for a company of less than 500 employees. The number of people that work for a company of more than 5,000 employees is exactly the same as it was in 1980. There's been no increase in employment of people of companies over 5,000. Now, why is that? Because the big multi-billion dollar companies engage in productivity enhancements, robotics. I'll give you one example. General Motors makes a car today with 12% of the employees that they used in 1980. So seven out of every eight employee that every uh, factory worker that it took to make a car is gone. They've been replaced by a robot. Uh, And so they don't. So the point is big, big companies, the Walmarts, the Amazons of the world, the federal government, you know, uh, they don't they don't drive employment in the United States. Companies of less than 500 drive employment in the United States. So if you're going to have a broad based credit slowdown among the small and regional banks, you are going to see the employment unemployment rate go up and go up a lot because that's where people get their jobs. They don't get their jobs from companies of 5,000 employees. They get their jobs from less than 500. Oh, well, that's going to do the Fed's job. That's my blowtorch example. Yes, like I like I said, I can set my house on fire there. I don't need Arkin anymore. I got rid of all the bugs. But that's not the way I want to get rid of all of the bugs. Uh, and so we have to be careful of what we're wishing for here. I don't want to see the small and regional banks struggle because this is going to have a profound impact on the economy. Jim, I've been in bank world. I haven't had enough time to focus the proper attention on the the debt ceiling, which really is a a looming issue. Uh, Several reporters today asked about the debt ceiling 
Fetcher J. Powell, as expected, kind of dodged it, say, that's not my job. Uh, that's that's Congress's job. And and when, when asked, what do you think about the potential consequences of, uh, of you know, debt, debt ceiling not being extended? He said, oh, that's so horrible. I, I can't even think about that. You know, we, we shouldn't even think about that. Uh, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a nightmare <laughs> scenario. That was pretty nice, funny. Right. Yeah, can you, can you just walk us through what's going on there? I think, did the Treasury issue some important news today, today and, and yesterday? Yes. So let me back us up here a little bit about the, uh, the, the debt ceiling. And I'd like to start off every conversation about the debt ceiling to remind people, because everybody says, it's stupid. Why do we have it? Because the, because the Constitution has a separation of powers, and the Constitution says that the Congress will approve all spending, and the president, the executive branch, will dispose of all spending. It is the job of the president to spend the money that Congress tells them to spend. So they have to have an oversight on things like the debt of the United States and spending in the United States. Now, prior to World War I, we didn't have a debt ceiling. Every time there was a, a bond that needed to be issued, the de actual debenture went up to the Congress as a bill, and they voted on it, and the president signed it, and they'd issue the bond. But then we started Liberty Bonds in World War I, and there was too many bonds that were coming every day. We couldn't do that, so we changed it to a debt ceiling. So we do need a separation of power. So if you said, do away with the debt ceiling, you can run up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court say, nope, nope, nope. Congress has to have oversight on this stuff. You cannot allow the president to run unchecked when it comes to borrowing money. So we need it. So now we're abusing- Doesn't Congress apportion it because they set the, the budget? Like if you say, oh, we're going to spend- a uh, trillion dollars more than we bring in in taxes and, and other things. So we're going to have a trillion dollar deficit. Congress apportions that. Uh, the president signs it. The, the treasury is then going to spend it. And then it, it has to go back to Congress to now have the ceiling uh, approved of something that they already wanted, right? Right, right. The other thing that I think we I want to just say before I get into the nuts and yeah, bolts yeah. about this, you know, that we need to have a debt ceiling. That's why it exists, because I think people have lost that uh, lost that idea of why it's there in the first place. The other thing we got to keep in mind, too, is that when Congress approves something, all of it is equally important. So I've heard people talk about, well, why don't we prioritize payments? Because remember, about half the money that we use to spend, the government gets about half of its money from taxes and gets the other half of its money from borrowing. So why doesn't it just use the half the money from taxes to pay interest rates? In other words, prioritize payments. I've been adamant about this. Prioritizing payments could be the end of the country because it will be abused in ways you cannot imagine. So you say, okay, we'll pay the debt ceiling, but we won't pay other things. Well, first of all, that's illegal. I think it's unconstitutional that you can run up to the Supreme Court and they'll say you can't do that. Second of all, the Treasury's already said they don't even have a, a computer system in place that they could actually say, we'll pay this bill and not that bill. They have to pay them as they get them. Third, why do I think it ends the country? Because the minute you're done with that, then a Democrat like Joe Biden could say, you know, the, the old Republican of Congress, they approved a new aircraft carrier a couple of years ago. Ah, I've just prioritized the day pay payments and I don't have money to pay for that aircraft carrier. Or a Republican president could say, you know, here's a bunch of Democrat priorities and I just prioritized some payments. I, I ran out of money to pay for the Democrat priorities. No, when Congress approves spending, it's all equally important and it all gets paid or none of it gets paid. And that should not change. So, and the reason I laid there, all these talk about mitigating this, you know, the platinum coin, payment prioritization, invoking the 14th Amendment, none of them should be done. I think Jay Powell is, what I'd like to say, what Jay Powell is saying is, 
The proper response from the Fed is to sit there motionless and do absolutely nothing. This is 100% a political issue. We elected people to Congress and they decided to default on our debt. Do yeah. not undo that. Because and the next we, thing is- we, we as the Fed can't save you. If, if the Congress decides not to pay the national debt and the, the US government becomes a defaulted entity, that's not my problem. I'm doing my right, job. Right, right. Let, let, yeah. let, let me give you the example. You, a couple of, if they did try to save us from it, then a couple of years from now, they could say, Jay Powell, the Republican Congress approved another aircraft carrier. Can you save us from that? Can you affect monetary policy to undo that aircraft carrier purchase? What a terrible situation we would be in. But that's what we'd be saying, is that we'd be saying there's some things that are more important than other things, and that's not his job to do. So I don't think he should do a damn thing about it. It's Congress's job to fix this. Now, What's happened in the last couple of days? Janet Yellen came out and said that the X date, that's the new term, it's new in the last couple of weeks, that the date that we have to raise the debt ceiling or we get default is June 1st or thereabouts, early June is where she she said. That was earlier than a lot of people thought. We thought it was going to be at the end of July. Now, why the difference? Because June 15th is a quarterly tax payment by businesses. You know, March 15th, June 15th, September 15th, December 15th, there's an inflow into the treasury on that date. A lot of people thought we could make it to June 15th with the existing amount of money that the treasury has in its general account, then we'd get a bump up in it, and then we'd run all that down by end of end of July, early August. But what Yellen said is, no, we're not going to make it to June 15th. We're going to hit zero and run out of uh, out of any money by early June. So there are some treasury bills that are due in June 1st, June 6th, June 13th. These are maturity dates of treasury bills. The fear is in the in the market that if you own a June 6th treasury bill and that June 6th treasury bill comes mature and you're supposed to get your principal back, but they don't have the money to give you the principal. The way they would have the money is they would issue another bill and then use that to pay you. Now we've done that forever, but they don't have that ability anymore. You own a bill that matured and you don't get your money. If you're a money market fund, what is the fair value of that bill? You're supposed to mark your bills at fair value. Less. A lot of people have argued zero is what the fair value of that bill is. Oh. You don't want to own that because you risk breaking the buck as a money fund. If you own 1% of your money fund in a June 6th bill and that June 6th bill doesn't pay, the next day, do you price it? Do you say that your NAV on your $1 fixed money market fund is 99 cents? So we don't know. This has never happened. And so to make your life simple, just avoid that whole sector. So you see this enormous hump now in the uh, Treasury bill yield curve. That's where it's showing up. Now, the reason I went through all that technical stuff is it's not showing up in the stock market. It's not showing up in the two-year note. It's not showing up in the 10-year note. And the reason it's not showing up there is Washington and Wall Street have two very different views. I was watching some of the Sunday talk shows. I think I might have slipped, fell, hit my head, and decided to turn on some Sunday talk shows. So <laughs> this uh, past Sunday, um, that's how much I like watching them. And the, the, the Washington Wags would tell you that there's about a 33% chance that there we're going to see a technical default uh, this to go around. But if you look at the pricing in the market, it's more like a 4% chance of credit so, default swaps. 
you have credit default swaps that yeah, yeah. it's about a those are bullshit instruments anyway uh, yeah, jim um, yeah like i feel like people say oh owning gold is not patriotic bitcoin because it's there's nothing less patriotic than owning a credit default swap on the u.s in my opinion you know and and by the way i'll just say this real quick about the credit default swaps it's a 12 billion dollar market on a 23 trillion dollar uh treasury market so it's 0.001 percent what is the definition You'll love this, Jack. What is the definition of a default? There is a committee that meets, and and they it's called the determinations committee, Ooh. and they then declare an event of default, and they can make it in, and it clearly states in the ISDA agreements, it's whatever the committee decides is an event of default. Ten years ago, they, we had a restructuring in Greece, and they were in technical default of their uh, of their bonds. Ten years ago, it took them two months to determine whether or not they were in technical default because it was a highly charged political event. If we go to non-payment on that June 6th bill, oh, we're in default? No, we're only in default when the committee, the determinations committee says that we're in default. And who's on that determinations committee? All the usual suspects, JP Morgan, B of A. And the reason I bring up those two is who do you think is going to be the representative? It's going to be Jamie Dimon and Brian Hoyenhan. And well, it's going to make block. it to all the hedge fund managers. Right. And, and the, because the reason it's going to be them is because they will have had a, pro, a call from they will have had five calls from Janet Yellen that morning that you if you declare the U.S. in default, you are setting the stage for the discussion of the 24 uh, election. And if President Biden wins after you damaged him by calling this a default, he will remember. Don't kid yourself. They will, they will, they will. That's what happened with Greece 10 years ago as well. And by the way, you'll love, really love this. Guess who else is on the committee that gets to determine whether or not the U.S. is in default? Credit Suisse. They get the call. They get to make the call as to whether or not the U.S. is in default. So I, what I'm trying to jokingly say is this is a highly charged committee political event. Well, if you buy your credit default swaps and the U.S. stops payment, Guess what? We'll be in day 37 of down payment and the committee will still be meeting and still be discussing and still be contemplating and they won't call it because it's so political. Uh, and that's where I think that they're missing it. By the way, who buys credit default swaps? I found this to be very interesting in, in chatting around. It's largely been banks. And really? why have banks been buying it? And there's a very rational reason that they've been buying it. Since Silicon Valley, all of a sudden, all the regulators are running into the banks going, what's your duration exposure? What exposure do you have here or there? What are you doing about a potential default to protect yourself? Oh, man, what am I supposed to do about a potential default? I know. I signed a DISDA agreement. Yeah. I got the phone number of the dealer. I bought one credit default swap and, bond. And it's super cheap. Yeah, it, yeah. leave me alone. It, yeah, I yeah. bought one bond. I didn't buy enough to hedge the bank. I just bought one, so I've established a relationship. Now, leave me alone. Regulator, leave me alone. I've got a I've got a plan in place, and these are very illiquid markets. So if enough banks buy one bond, the credit default goes through the moon, and then everybody tweets that chart out every 14 seconds on Twitter saying right. that the U.S. is going to default. Right. So yeah. be careful with that market. It isn't quite what you think it is. Yes, and people seen the big short about a little over halfway into the movie. There's a scene where the fundamentals are working out for people who bought credit default swaps, CDS on all these subprime loans and, and CDOs, but they were getting screwed over by the banks. So that's you know that that, that right. happened. It's a dark it, market, and you know, there was a time in mid March when people were posting credit default swap rates on Deutsche Bank and saying, "Oh my God, the panic is continues," and, and that that was a legit trade. But Bloomberg later reported it was one trade. 
So it, it's not right. like, oh, Apple goes from 140 to 130 and it's a real market. It's just, it's just sometimes it's just one guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and and people in the credit markets will say, no, it's very straightforward. There's the rules and they follow the rules. Yes. If Bed Bath & Beyond, which two weeks ago files for bankruptcy, files chapter 11, and then says that they're not going to make their debt payments, I, I don't need to put a lawyer on the determinations committee. I could put an intern on the determinations committee. Guess what? That is an event of default. It is not controversial. It's very simple. But when you get to nationally important banks like Deutsche Bank, or countries like Greece, or potentially the United States, these become highly politically charged things. So I just wanted to say, be careful with the credit default swap market. It isn't for US CDS. It isn't what you think it is. For non-politically charged corporations and stuff like that, the credit default swap of some, of, of, of some struggling uh, corporation like AMC or something like that, that that's legit. But yeah. this is something completely different. Um, as well. So what will probably happen, what has always been the uh, uh, the, the roadmap? Mar May 9th, President Biden is finally going to sit down with Congress to start negotiating about the debt ceiling. They won't get this done by June 1st. They will agree to pass what's called a continuing resolution. This is what they always do. What is a continuing resolution? They'll raise the debt ceiling a little bit. To say that now it's not so we'll give the Treasury some borrowing authority so they could pay those June 6th bonds. But then the new debt ceiling X date is now June 30th. And then when we get to June 30th, they'll raise it again and it'll be July 15th. And they'll keep negotiating and negotiating until they find some face saving way for everybody to walk away from this. And, and that's how this always works. It's always political theater and it's political brinksmanship. Because I agree, if we were to default, it would be catastrophic. And let me give you an argument about you haven't heard. Oh, we don't want to be a deadbeater nation. Forget that. When JP Morgan bought First Republic for $10.6 billion, I'm going to be real simple here. Does that mean there's going to be a line of Brinks trucks with pallets of $100 bills to pay for this $10.6 billion acquisition? No, they're going to transfer a reserve uh, from, from their bank to, to another the bank and did the FDIC to pay it. What is yeah. the reserve that they're going to transfer? It is a treasury bill. It is a treasury security because we treat treasury securities yeah. as cash as substitutes. They're the same thing as a dollar bill in your pocket. So if we default and those June 6th bills are, you know, not getting paid, but the August bills, you know, it's still, they, they don't have to get paid. It would be like, it would be like, I have some twenties in my pocket and I go to buy something in the store, but some of the serial numbers are worth zero and other of the serial numbers are worth 20. What happens at the store? Every transaction takes 20 minutes. We got to look at the serial number. We got to look it up to see whether or not it's worth something. The whole system grinds to a halt. Everything stops. That's what would happen here. You would be introducing impure money into the money system. And it would be impure. very, very de de uh, you know, uh, detrimental to the entire payment system, to the plumbing system, because we are sending back and banks, financial institutions, large corporations are sending money back and forth to each other, not pallets of $100 bills, treasury bills. That's what they send back and forth to each other. And if you tell me, but some of those treasury bills are worth zero and other of those treasury bills are worth a hundred cents on the dollar, time out here. 
we got to start, we got to redo this system to make sure we pull those bills out. I don't know if we have the capability to do that because the system was never designed for that in mind. So it would be very, very detrimental if we were to have a default of any kind. Right. So j- just want to clarify. Uh, so you're right. The uh, um, JP Morgan paid $10.6 billion, to, but it was to the FDIC. Uh, like uh, right. it was not the equity holders who were bought. They, they got nothing. Um, right. And, but they're not sending, they're not sending a line of Brinks trucks with hundreds. Yeah. They, there's, they no 10. 6, there's, there's no such thing as money. There's no such, yeah, they, uh, tre- treasuries there's, you know, except for gold. Or yeah. They send, them, tre- they send them treasury bills. They yeah. send them treasury bills. Yes. But what if you sent them a, what if you send them a June 6 treasury bill that doesn't get paid? That's yeah. not worth anything. And that's when the problems start. Oh, right, Jim. So you know a lot more about this. I want to ask you that than I do. Uh, you say it's worth zero. I, what I've heard is that the risk is not that you will get, you won't get paid. You will get paid eventually. The risk is that you will forego interest. So if you yes. were going to get you know, a small amount of yield on a bill that you, is going to mature on June sixth, you you won't get the hundred dollars back uh, December, December. By which time you could have reinvested into securities that actually pay interest. So you're going to lose out on that, and that the sort of Actual value will be something. Oh, it won't be ninety nine dollars and sixty cents. It will be ninety nine dollars and twenty cents. I think when you call things zero, I, I think I, if I get what you're saying. It's that the risk of money markets not being paid when they think they'll be paid is so severe that they don't they don't want to touch it with you know. It, so they, they will not assign at a value of zero, but they they just won't touch it, and that's why you're getting such so such you know, weird kinks in the yield curve. Do I have that right? Yes, yes, yes. You're right. So let me let me be clear on this. That zero argument for fair value is in what is SEC rule A27, which is basically that everybody that has to value their, their holdings every day, like a money market, has to use a fair value. Now, if you're a hedge fund or your pension fund and you don't have to value every day and you see that there, there's panic and you see a 5.5, which actually was yesterday, you know, treasury bill that matures on June 13th, well, I'll buy it. And if I don't get paid for a day or two, uh, that's fine because I don't have to value my securities every day. If it's a couple of day delay to get paid, I'm fine with that. So they'll buy it, but it's the ones that have to get marked to market every day to a fair value. Now the question becomes, you're right. What is the fair value? There has been some argument that the fair value for those that like money funds, that it's zero on non-payment, or it's just the loss of interest. It's 99.91 the first day you miss, 99.8 the second day you miss, and so on and so forth. No one knows, but let me give you let me give you a hypothetical example. The largest mutual fund in the United States is the Fidelity Cash Reserve Fund. It is their the biggest money market fund. It has two hundred and sixteen billion dollars of assets. By the way, one hundred and two of it is in reverse repo at the Fed, forty seven percent, and that's perfectly fine for them to do that. That fund generates $1.1 billion of fees to Fidelity. It is the most profitable mutual fund in the world. Why do you, and I'm going to use some technical language here, what do you want to fuck with that? By saying, let's own some June 6 bills and argue about what their payment valuation should be on non-payment and potentially risk printing 99.9 on the NAV. Just avoid the whole thing altogether. I like the billion dollars this fund is bringing in. Don't screw with this. Yeah. Get away from that sector. That's what that I, I say it that way because that's the way people are looking at it. I don't want to get involved in a protracted fight about what is the proper value, 99.9 or zero. I'll just avoid the whole thing, keep collecting my fees, 
keep watching the inflows from the bank walk. Thank you very much. That's why you see that big kink in the yield curve. It's not been settled as to what that value should be because this has never happened. And this gets into the definition of what is fair value on a treasury bill that does not get paid at maturity. Is it zero or is it just the mere loss of opportunity? So, you know, you could argue it's a loss of opportunity and then the SEC could come in and say, no, it's zero. And now we could go to court and argue for two years. Is that worth your time? Is that worth your effort? No, just avoid the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. People, people who own it to people who own it and who can own it, it's definitely not zero. But the rules can say it's it's zero, and uh, funds can act in a certain way that they would value it right. as, as if it were zero. Yeah, so, so, Jim, what does the yield curve look like now? I know I did about you know, two, three weeks ago. I did an interview with Jeff Snyder at the time, probably the bottom in the yield for the one month Treasury bill, uh, which was super, super low. But I know that that's gone back up now, and I wonder if actually the 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 fact that the the U.S. is the debt ceiling, the X date is now June 1st. That means that those one month securities are no longer money good, right? Well, at, at the one month maturity level, yes. But the ones that mature, remember every week, the treasury issues treasury bills, sometimes more than one a week. You know, there's a, there's a six month and a, and a three month that they issue. There's a, one, there's a one month that they issue. So if you look at all the treasury bills, all treasury bills are less than one year. There's like 60 of them out there. There's like a couple every week that mature. So if you look at the ones that mature before May 30th, their yield is down around 450, 440, at least last time I checked earlier today. And uh-huh. if you look at the ones that mature around June 13th, their yield is up around 525, 3540, up you're almost 100 basis points higher. Now, I've argued the reason that you've got that very low level at the, at the very short end of the yield curve is the average maturity of a money market fund, the, uh, the securities that a money market fund owns, the average maturity is about 20 days. They, that's what they're buying. All the money keeps coming into these money funds and they keep buying at the 20 day average maturity. They've been the ones that have been keeping the front end of that depressed. It's the bank walk that's been keeping it suppressed. I you know the, the higher yields around mid June, cause that's right after the X date. Those are that those are because of the debt ceiling. So there's two things happening at once, but that, that big, huge curve is still there um, as well. And as a matter of fact, if you look at that, there is a treasury bill that actually matures on June 1st, it's healed us up over 120 basis points in the last three days. I don't think I've ever seen a yield do that. And that's just the money funds that owned it don't want the hassle that we just talked about. Just sell it and move, just sell it and buy something in August. It's just so much easier or buy something, you know, and that's, and that's what they're largely doing is they're just avoiding that sector. So yeah, Jim, I mean, how do you think this plays out? I know in 2011, uh, many people were worried, but eventually, you know, Congress got its act together, it raised the debt ceiling, everything was fine. Uh, I don't know if you know, treasury yields went up, they went down, probably both, but at the end of the day, everything was fine. Why do you think this might be different? Uh, and then also, what, what's going to happen if this might be different? Uh, and, and then also, if the treasury, you know, uh, the debt ceiling does get raised and the treasury issues you know, a trillion dollars worth of paper, that's not necessarily great for liquidity. Right. So I'm going to watch President Biden because he's going to be the, the swing factor in all of this. I believe from what I've seen, you know, Speaker McCarthy wants to come up with some kind of a deal. But President Biden, up until Monday, refused to even talk to him. 
there's nothing to talk about. Just pass a clean, they called it a clean debt ceiling bill. It's too dangerous. You have to pass a clean debt ceiling bill. Now, let's go back to 2011. How did Obama handle it with John Boehner, who was the Speaker of the House at that point? Um, they talked and 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 they were making progress and then they weren't making progress. And then finally, Obama kind of came out and said, God, I've I, I tried. I really, really tried to, to, to do with, but this guy's being completely unreasonable. And then we took it to the brink and it looked like the Republicans were going to get completely blamed for it. And then we found a deal with what was called sequestration, if you remember that word from back 10 years ago, and then then a crisis averted. My concern now is if President Biden looks too intransigent, I'm not going to talk. I'm going to be unreasonable. I'm just going to I'm just going to call Speaker McCarthy names, but I'm not really going to negotiate with him on finding a way out of this. He might set himself up to take some of the blame. And the Republicans will always get some of the blame. And my fear is if it's 100 percent the Republicans fault, they won't default. But if it's 60 percent the Republicans fault and 40 percent Biden's fault, they might go for it. And so Biden needs Mm. to, I think, do the Obama thing. Talk, 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 make some progress. We'll give a little bit here and there. And then if he wants to come out the last minute and go, man, these guys are unreasonable. I really, really tried. But then at least you look like you tried. But if all you do is give them the finger for a month and not even pick up the phone, it looks like you're the problem. It doesn't look like so much that they're the problem. So watch Biden as far as where we go. Now, we get a deal and we get a deal and 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 uh, that deal comes. You're right. That is another big drain on reserves. Because remember, the Treasury is going to issue a ton of securities. Where does that, you know, they sell Treasury bills. That money goes where? It goes into the Treasury general account. The Treasury actually has, think of it this way. The Treasury is a checking account and their bank the is the Fed. Yep. And it's at the Fed. But remember, the money in the Treasury general account is not considered money in the financial system. It's separate from money in the financial system. So as they sell hundreds of billions of dollars of bonds and they raise hundreds of billions of dollars that gets piled into the Treasury's general account, that is effectively taking money out of the financial system. That is another drag like quantitative tightening is, like the deposit walk is. The deposit walk is a drag on the financial system because it's money coming out of banks and it's going to non-banks, money market funds, and it's going to fintechs that... Yeah. You know, in reverse repo, guess what? None of those are in M2, which is why M2 is falling. Yeah. The reason M2 is falling is not because money is being destroyed. It's because it's being moved to non-M2 things, which is outside of that. Well, money in the Treasury general account is also a non-M2 thing, too. So you'd be dra- you'd be sucking more money out of it. So the reserves in the banking system would get tighter. That medium-sized that medium-sized bank that's looking at financing a $75 million apartment building in Kansas City that might employ a few hundred construction workers is that much closer to saying, good idea on the apartment building, love the location, love what you want to do with it. I think you're a good credit, but I just don't have the balance sheet to hand out the loan. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. They're that much closer to saying that if we start dragging that money out of the system. So yeah, there is going to be a back end of this, and that is money getting sucked into the Treasury's general account through the issuance of bills. Think of that as money leaving the financial system. It still exists, right. but it's not part of the financial system. It's it's part of the government's owners, and the government is not part of the financial system for these purposes. 
Right. And if the, a lot of the money to buy bills comes out of the reverse repo facility, the liquidity drain will be less severe. If not, it, it could be quite severe. All right, so, so Jim, given you know, moving back to the Federal Reserve and the banking system, given your views on the, the health of the, the banking system, and it you know, sounds like you think that there will be more issues. I mean, what would you right. do if, if you were Jay Powell? He's already raised rates to 5.25%, highest in 15 years. To cut them immediately would look kind of weak. Not that you know, it's all about optics. Quantitative tightening is, is still running. You've got the bank term funding program as well as the discount window, usage of which has been slowly edging down. I mean, what would you do, you know, Jim Bianco, uh, chair of the Fed? Well, the chair of the Fed has two jobs, right? He has monetary policy, which is the fun stuff that they like to talk about all the time. And he's also the head supervisor. He's also the head regulator for the uh, banking system. I would probably, in, the, the, in, in Fed speak, they call that macro prudential. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'd probably look more towards macro prudential rules. I would probably look towards uh, how, when when everybody shows up at the bank and says, give me my money back, and it squeezes the bank, what option does the bank have? They take their assets, securities that they own, and they pledge them to the Fed to get a loan for money. And that's how they meet all of those withdrawals. I'd loosen some of those rules. Now, they've done a little bit of that right now um, to at least make banks uh, be able to, you know, from, come to the window. The FHLB, the Federal Home Loan Bank, it does something similar, but it's usually with residential mortgage type securities mm-hmm. um, as well too. But the big problem we have is if you own securities, you can pledge them to get a loan for outflows. But 73% of the balance sheet of a small bank is actual loans on the books. You can't pledge a loan to the Fed or the FHLB to get cash to meet withdrawals. You can convert those, you can maybe sell those on Wall Street so they could package them into a loan as well. I would encourage the small banks to start moving some loans off of their books. Now, that's easy to say. The problem is I did the loan months ago and it has a 3% yield. We're in a 6% world. So if I sell the loan, it's worth 94 cents. So and now everyone wants to sell cents. it now. The, the time to sell it would have been before the bank crisis. Right. But I, I also have to realize a loss if, yes. I sell, if I sell the loan now. So I understand that that's easy. In other words, there's no really good option. And I would be, I would be very, very focused on the flight of deposits and the response by the small banks on their lending standards because I think you could see a dramatic slowdown in the economy. Like I said, you can have a banking crisis with no more failures of banks. It's just that everybody acts rationally. I like 5% money market funds. I don't like half a percent savings accounts with banks. And there's your problem. And and why wasn't that a problem in the 90s? Because you didn't have 120 million mobile apps. That's why it's a problem now. Uh, And so that's where I think we need to focus. That's the best way I could do it. Look, you asked me what I would do today. Hmm. All the Fed has today is trade-offs. They don't have, here's the policy that fixes everything. The policy that would have made this work would have been when they raised rates in March of 22 for the first time, the inflation rate was 7%. They waited till 7% until they raised right. in, until they started raising rates. If they started raising rates at three and a half or four a year earlier, went 25, 25, waited a meeting, went 25, waited a meeting, 25, waited a meeting and took your time to get the 5%, a lot of those mortgages and a lot of those loans and securities would have rolled over into higher yields and the banks wouldn't have been able to follow with their deposit rates higher. Instead of giving us 75 for four consecutive meetings, you raced way ahead of what the banks could do. And this is what you've got. 
So the mistake was made two years ago by keeping rates at zero for way, way too long. All the Fed has is trade-offs. Mm-hmm. They don't have a policy. Do this and everything will be okay. Right. So they, that ship's that ship sailed. The ship sailed. Yeah, it's it's already too late. Uh, too late. Um, Jim, you've been very generous with with your time. I do have two more questions for you, but in the meantime, people should uh, check you out on Twitter at Bianco Research, and they should check your work out at Bianco Research. Uh, my my fir- first question, Jim, is just to sort of you know, sum up uh, the Fed statement today, and, and Powell reiterated it. Uh, said that quote: "The U.S. banking system is sound and resilient." Uh, how do you feel about this statement? And if I could do a sort of like a poll-like question, strongly agree, agree, neutral, disagree, or strongly disagree? I'm going to give you neutral. And the reason I'm going to give you neutral is I want to put a nuance on it. Okay. The big, the big four banks are strongly resilient. The, the, and that's because they're large diversified um, businesses. But the narrowly focused regional and small banks have always been a little bit more vulnerable and they're a lot, and they're more vulnerable to, you know, this bank walk type of thing. So that is the problem. Now I will point out that, you know, what is a bank? And I I actually tweeted this out earlier today too. A lot of people listening to us think a bank is a warehouse where we put our money, right? Instead of putting it in a shoebox under my bed, which could catch fire or be lost or stolen, I put it in the bank and they give me some interest. And, and, you know, Felix Solomon of Reuters said, well, why do we even have 4,000 banks when we have four? Well, if all you think of a bank is as a warehouse to stuff your money into, and that's a legitimate use of a bank, then he's correct. We only need four banks. But if the, the purpose of a bank is intermediary to basically give that apartment building builder a loan in Kansas City to build that apartment, then we do need 4,000 banks. And so, yes, the warehouses that we keep our money in they're safe, they're strong and resilient. But the rest of them, by the nature of, look, they hand out loans in Kansas City. They don't, they don't have global multi-line businesses that one business is good and the other business isn't good and it all balances off. If handing out loans to real estate developers in Kansas City is a struggling business, and it is, then the bank is struggling. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. And we all understand that because that's the nature of being a small and regional bank. And we need them because if you're if the option is instead of getting that loan from um, a small or regional bank in Kansas City, you have to call a branch of Chase or B of A in Chicago and ask for a banker there to give you the loan. Good luck trying to get that loan. Good luck trying to get them to understand your business, let alone get that loan. So what you have is the large banks, the who's who's the who are the bankers in the large banks, the B of A's, JP Morgan's, they're wealth managers. They're there to help you invest your money. Who are the who are the bankers in small and medium banks? They're lenders. They're there to help you lend money. So yes, the large banks are safe. The uh the small and medium banks are generally safe. I'm not worried about that depositors are going to lose money. But what I am worried about is their ability to keep lending could be severely restricted in the coming months. So that's why I give you neutral. It's not as so much as that the banking system is sound and resilient. It's a little more nuanced than that. I appreciate that nuance, Jim. Final question for you is uh, Nick Timrose, who you know asked a question of Jay Powell today, uh, chief economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. He's been asking interesting questions where sometimes it's kind of you know um, uh, reductio ad absurdum, just like assuming the case. He's kind of assumes a super dovish case of like why not just not hike at all, and it's kind of an interesting way to get about it, generate a good, uh, interesting answer. Um, so I'm interviewing Nick tomorrow. Do you do you have any questions uh, that? 
might be good for me to ask Nick. Yeah, I thought his, I actually thought his question was actually pretty good. I mean, he asked the question that, you know, we're getting close to neutral. We need to assess what it meant that all the rate hikes that we've done so far. So why you keep raising rates if you need to assess what you've done? Stop and assess it. I mean, I'm not saying that that's what they should do. You told me you need to assess it. I think most normal people, you know, not Federal Reserve officials, would say, I need to assess something. That means stop doing it and figure out what 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 has happened. For You don't keep doing it and then and then assess it along the way. So I thought his question um, was was very good. I would I would you know, my bias is to ask him about more about the banks and how the Fed is viewing the banking system and about I thought the best, most interesting question was Leesman's question. And I thought that his answer was really weak. You, We've put it up twice. It, I don't know what more the Fed needs to be told that there's a problem here. Oh, it's just informational purposes. Jim, it's just one and, page. Yeah, just it's one just page. one page. It's just one page. You know, I, I don't know what more they need. So I would maybe lean a little bit more on them there. And this is my bias, because like I said, you could tell me where inflation is now. We went through that with the base effect or where GDP is going to be or where the employment is going to be. But you tell me what the cumulative effect of this bank walk is going to be in five months. And I'll tell you where the economy is going to be at the end of the year. So that's kind of where I'd focus on it. But I thought he had a good question. If you're going to assess something, stop doing it and assess it. So, you know, I, you know, so but they kept doing it and they're going to assess it. So. It's just more confusion from the Fed. Right. And Nick's, I think the great part of Nick's question was it kind of softened Powell up so that Nick's follow-up question was about how long is it going to take to see uh, disinflationary pressure longer than six weeks? And by the way, six weeks is when the June meeting is. And Powell actually said, yes. So if we do get another hike in June, which the market is, it's not the base case, the market doesn't sound like it's your base case, not not my base case, but that that might've been a little glimmer there that, uh, you know, he's, he's keeping yeah, you know, the door open. You know, keep in mind, too, I will say this, that the market is not pricing in a rate hike for June, but three or four weeks ago, the market was not pricing a rate hike for May. Yeah. And then we got an avalanche of Fed speakers saying, we're going to raise, we're going to raise, we're going to raise, we're going to, and then it priced it in. As I said, there's a dance that the market does. The market prices an outcome, the Fed suggests an outcome, and they kind of come to an agreement. Sometimes the market forces its will on the Fed. Sometimes the Fed forces its will on the market. The May meeting was the Fed forcing its will on the market. The market had not priced in a, made a rate hike, and the Fed kind of forced its will to price it. So they can always start coming out in two weeks or so and start trying to impose their will for a June rate hike. So just because it's not priced in now, doesn't mean it's completely off the table. That is an excellent point. Jim, thanks so much for coming on, sharing your insights. We'll leave it there. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.